Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Susan Rose. She is a musician, country singer. She's a... a, a She is a musician and country singer who became a lighting designer, lighting director, and programmer. Welcome, Susan. Thanks for being on the show. Well, good morning, and thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate being here. So what are you up to right now? What's happening right now in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee? Well, you know, I've become a a different kind of LD lately of landscape design. (laughs) I've had lots of time to work on the house, do landscaping, do hiking, do kayaking. You know, it's been a little sabbatical this year, obviously, because of everything getting canceled. But with that being said, as you said, I live in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, and we kind of have a little different vibe going on here. Um, We actually are open. Our theaters are actually open right now. We're at half capacity. Um, We do have a mask mandate. They they space people out seating-wise, but we're doing shows. We're doing live shows. I've been involved in majority of these theaters here, you know, at one point or another in my life, but... Right now, this year, I've been very, very blessed to at least still have the Country Tonight Theater, where I've designed and programmed that show. We just opened our Christmas show this week, ironically enough, on Sunday. Um, so I've had that creative outlet to still get to do some you know, designing and programming. Yeah, that's really important. Yeah, it, it is, because I, I, you don't realize what you got until it's taken away from you. And us creative types, you have to have that creative outlet. And for me... You know, I love making people see the music and and tell a story with lighting. And to me, it's just been such a rush to be able to at least have a place where I can go and actually get that fulfillment. And um, it's a little different this year, though, because I'm actually in town, you know, indefinitely, obviously, right now. Which is unusual for you, right? It's very unusual for me. Usually I'm on the road about 80 percent of the year and I'm always coming home and long enough to change out my suitcase and wash my clothes and put them back in and leave again. And it was a little bit of shock at first, honestly. It was a little culture shock for me um, the first part of this year, just a- adapting to this new way of life. But right now, honestly, I'm loving life right now. And um, with the Country Tonight Theater, what's been great about that is normally I just program it and design it, you know, and walk away. And my lighting director runs it, you know, the house lighting director there. Um, but this year, since I'm here, I actually told him, I'll be your sub. So he can have a night off because we're doing seven nights a week there. So I actually go in now to the theater and actually run my own show, you know, a couple of nights a week. I'm actually doing it right now. He's had, he has a week off right now, so I'm here all week. Um, but I actually run the show. And even on some nights when they need a spotlight operator, I go up and run a spotlight for it. And I am just having so much fun going back to my roots of actually running a spotlight or just running a production show <laughs> rather than just designing and programming it. So I, I really, really been enjoying doing that and it gets me around the music it gets me around the the environment again of theater and i'm just i've just really really been enjoying it it's a different way of life now though you know i come in and with my mask on they take our temperature we sign a a paper saying we haven't had any symptoms or anything i turn everything on and then usually i go outside and walk around the theater just you know i get a little evening walk in and right before the show i come in with my mask i have very little contact with with people and guests I go straight to the booth. Once I get in the booth, I wipe everything down. I use my own headset. Um, I'll take the mask off in the booth when I'm running the show. You know, intermission and end of the show, I just rinse and repeat, put the mask back on and leave, you know. So it's not the same as it used to be where you hung out with everybody. And I I like talking to people and talking to the guests. But now I just kind of, you know, I'll I'll nod to somebody because you you can't see your smile anymore. And that's a big thing. I always do a smile. I try to use my eyes and wave at somebody and, hey, how you doing? You know? So what, what kinds of shows are these? What kind of stuff is being produced there? Well, Pigeon Forge is a lot like Branson, if anybody's familiar with Branson. We have a lot of musical production shows here. You know, we're not on the scale of Broadway, by means, or um, Vegas. But we have great shows here. They're entertaining for people um, of all ages. We get a, a lot of an older crowd here. But for family, they're family shows, so they're family-friendly. Um, we have a lot of dinner theater shows, like, you know, the, the Stampede and you know, Hatfields and McCoys, but then we have this, well, the Country Tonight Theater, and we have a Motown show. We have all kinds of theaters here that just have live entertainment with, with live music, live bands. It's not all tracked, you know, it's, 
We have live bands here still that actually and dancers and singers that actually sing. And they're entertaining. They're, they're fun shows for two hours just to escape reality. You're closing in on 30 years in the business, right? Sure, yeah. Hey, I started when I was three. I'm a prodigy. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, I've been in entertainment my entire life. I started when I was 14 singing professionally, actually, in bands. And um, spent, you know, a good decade of my life, you know, touring my own show with, with bands and um, recording and doing my stuff. And then I actually performed on cruise ships and performed at Dollywood and performed in some of these shows when I was younger. But my lighting career was really born in 1994. And um, I moved to Nashville in 94 to be a country music star because that's what you do when you're a country singer is you go to Nashville, you know? So how did you sort of discover music and how did you decide that that was what you wanted to do? Well, ironically enough, I was not born into a music family. I was the only child. I was extremely shy when I was young. Nobody ever believes that that meets me now. But back then, I was the shyest kid in the world. And my mom was trying to find something that could help me get out of my shyness and interact. And she put me into some little dance classes. And she's like, you want to try acting? You want to try doing TV commercials? I was like, well, that could be fun. And so I started doing little little local theater around town and getting these little dance classes. I got on a clogging team. And then um, we were going to this place in Orlando that called Church Street Station, which was pretty much the start of the entertainment music complexes, kind of like City Walk and Pleasure Island. But this is way before then. And they would do, you know, TNN, back when TNN, the National Network was big, they would do live TV shows from there and country music concerts. And then they had a a house band there. So we started going there to see the shows. And all of a sudden, my mom looks on the dance floor and there I am line dancing. And she's like, oh, my God, my daughter is socializing. Wow. So we started going there every weekend. Whatever this is, this is what we're doing. (laughs) Yeah. And I made all these friends. I, I always connected better with adults than I did people my own age at the time. And I think I'm just an old soul. I don't know what you want to call it. But um, anyway, I was just infatuated with the band. Now, my mom had no clue that I had no clue that I was going to be a singer. And I was just I thought the band was the coolest thing in the world. The girl singer was my idol. She was my mentor. So on my 14th birthday, for my birthday, I wanted to celebrate it there. And I wanted to get on stage and sing. So they said, OK, that's your birthday present. So that afternoon, I go in and I rehearse a song with the band. And that night I got on that stage, like that's where I belonged. I really feel like a lot of us performers, I can't speak for everyone, but a lot of people, other performers I've talked to, it's kind of like off stage we were really shy, but on stage you, you developed this, this alter ego, almost this, this other personality because all of a sudden people liked me and I was accepted and I was like, whoa, nobody's making fun of me and bullying me anymore because I was bullied as a kid, you know, and I'm like, wow and I just felt like I belonged up there so I get up there and everybody's like huh and I just took over that stage it was a full house that night didn't even get nervous I was it was just like I felt like I belonged there and um, that's really cool so they used to do this live radio show there every Thursday called live from the Cheyenne they said hey because here I am this 14 year old kid I was kind of like Hannah Montana before Hannah Montana you know (laughs) um yeah, because back then I looked older than I was. I sounded older than I was. Of course, my mom always had a close eye on everybody. And the bartenders would say, hey, this guy's looking at Susan. My mom would be like, you know, she's only 15, right? <laughs> but um, oh boy. But after that, I started doing this live radio show every Thursday. And then these bands started asking me to sing with them. And off I went performing. And my mom's like, she wasn't a stage mom. She was very supportive. But she wasn't one of those stage moms going, my kid's going to be a star. I was like, mom, I want to go do this. I want to audition for this show. I want to go sing. And. So off I went and um, I started singing full time in bands. I started recording and um, going to Nashville recording and doing stuff like that. And I actually had a, a record company at one time. I had a, a cash box. It got up to like 74 in cash box, which was like billboard at the time. Um, never went big, but it was like, oh, wow, this is what I wanted. I, I realized that was my calling was music. And I didn't realize that, you know, being a singer is what actually led me to being a lighting designer. I mean, I'm so thankful that I've had, I had that career because that led me, music led me to lighting. And even now lighting has led me full circle back to music because I still do music, but more for the passion of it. Now I'm not competing with all the 20 year olds out there. I'm not, I'm not into the new country music. I like the older traditional stuff and it's a small market, but there's people that still like that. So I just, I can do it for the passion now, but I really feel like, Susan Rose was actually born in the Cheyenne Saloon. 
you know, okay. because of the Cheyenne Saloon is, is because of who I am today. And of course, over the years, obviously, you know, the stage persona and the personal persona kind of merged. And now, obviously, I could talk to a wall and have a conversation. But, you know, it, it really changed who I was. And it, it, I just music is a passion of mine. It'll always be in my blood. So that's, that's all I know is this industry. It's an amazing story. That's how you figured out that you wanted to be a singer. Uh, what happened when you moved to Nashville? Well, I mean, I had gone to Full Sail back in 88, 89 in Orlando, which is a school for, back then it was tiny. And I actually went for recording arts, not for lighting wasn't even anything in, in 88, you know. I went for recording arts because I wanted to understand how, I've always had a very technical mind because my dad literally built missiles for the Army. So I've always had oh, a technical mind. So um, who did he work for? Lockheed or yeah, one of those? When he when he retired from the army, he still did stuff over at Lockheed, which is Martin Marriott at the time. And we were back and forth in Germany a lot and Cape Canaveral. But he actually was a logistician for the Pershing missiles until he discontinued the Pershing missiles. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just I, I've always had this technical mind because even before I went to full sale, my mom had bought me this little four track cassette recorder. You know, the little Tascam four track. I, I, they use all four, both sides of the cassette, basically. Got it. So they, the A and B side, they just use all four tracks. And even at 14 and 15, I was learning how to bounce tracks and play my little keyboard and, and do stuff. So, I mean, I just was kind of self-taught as far as that went. Just to kind of, I started songwriting without even realizing that I was songwriting. I'd record at home and do my little task camp cassette. So I decided I wanted to go to school for it, to learn how things worked in the studio so I could better understand how to talk to a sound engineer to tell them what I wanted to hear or yeah, I wanted to have my own home studio. So I kind of went more just to learn the logistics and the technical end of stuff. And even I was always a chick singer carrying around my own PA system for the band. So I really wanted to understand how everything worked. Not not thinking this was going to be a career. It was just going to kind of enhance my music career. So fast forward, back in 1992, I was a performer at Dollywood. And when they found out I had interned as a tech at Disney, they said, hey, do you want a second job here? Do you want to come over when you're done singing in the show in the daytime, come run lights for the show at night? Now, I'm like, I can push the go button. Okay, sure, you know. So that was the first time I actually had run lights at Dollywood, but still didn't think that was going to be a career. So I moved to Nashville in 94, and I was going to be a country music star. I got to be right there in Nashville. So I got a job at Opryland. I had auditioned for Opryland. I made it to the final cuts, but they had no positions open. Said, well, do you want to work in, in the concert venue? Do you want to be a spotlight operator? I said, sure, I need a job. So I took a job as a spotlight operator at Opryland. And that was a big theme park at the time. A lot of, 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 of country music, you know, um, singers, musicians, technicians were born out of that park. You know, it was kind of like a breeding ground for country music at the time. So I get a job as a spotlight operator. And I was at the Geo Theater, and that summer, we just happened to have a country music group called Alabama in there. And the whole hog console had just come out. The one, not the two, the one. There weren't a whole lot of those, right? Nope, there were not very many of those made. I'm probably one of the few people that's actually seen one, let alone been on one. So, but it was new to me. I was 24 years old, you know, and... We had this concert rig with IntelliBeams and scrollers and all these lights. And I'm just like, wow, this is neat. So the the, the park had purchased the console because the LD is, is who spec'd it. And, but it was so new at the time. It was such a new technology because here it was this, this console for 1994. I had 12 DMX universes on it, which was unheard of back then. And this little 386 computer processor and... You know, everything was in one. It was, you know, there weren't two consoles anymore, one for conventional lights, one for moving. It was all off of this. Of course, I didn't know the difference. I was I had never really done much lighting before. So I just had this interest in it. How's this thing work? So he started showing me every day, like in between shows, and other people are reading the book, riding rides. I'm out there, oh, this is cool, and understanding how. You know, back then the terminologies, because the, the the it came from England, was different. You know, the, what we know now is like an effects engine was called a stack synthesizer, and a Qlist was called a stack. So I'm learning all these terms. This is a stack synthesizer, and this is a, a stack, and this is this and that. And I didn't realize that the whole Hog One had an effects engine of any kind. It did. It was very basic. It was called a stack synthesizer, and it was the first of its kind. You could apply a sine wave, but it was in steps. I mean, it was pretty complex, but it was pretty much the first of its kind. So anyway, um, I started playing on this thing, and it was fun. You know, every afternoon, I'm like, wow, this is cool. So fast forward 
to the end of the concert series. Um, you know, Alabama's gone. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the park owns this console and they're like, well, who knows how to run this thing? And well, Susan, you've kind of been playing around on it. You want to do some shows and hear this blah? I'm like, oh, sure. That sounds fun. So I started doing that and thinking this is a lot of fun, you know, still having no idea that this was the birth of something huge, you know? I mean, I was on the ground floor of it because the following year, they asked me to be the LD for the concert series. They're going to bring in multiple acts. And they said, you know, the, the acts that don't have LDs, you can run the lights. And the acts that do, you configure the console for them because at this time, at point, nobody knew how to run it. So um, I started meeting other LDs that took me under their wing. And so, you know, like, you know, of course, this is early on before there was a lot of females even doing this. I didn't even think about that part, you know. And they're like, you're really good at this, Susan. You have a knack for programming and blah, blah, blah. And there's this nightclub that has some IntelliBeans and emulators. You, they want you. Can you go over there and program it? Okay. And I figure out this little LCD controller houses where I had a knack for picking up programming. So in the meantime, another LD took me under his wing, Jed Downing, who's still a very dear friend of mine. And he was like taking me around and introducing me to people saying, this girl's a really good programmer. She knows his console. And then they brought the whole hog two in to demo. And they're like, we want you to come look at this whole hog two and see what you think. And I'm like, I don't like it. There's not enough buttons and faders on it. You know, here I am. I don't know what I was talking about. But I was used to the big console with all the buttons and faders because the whole hog one was very similar approach like the MA with the executor buttons, you know, because the whole hog one had a lot of buttons where you can store things just like you could you know, to, to toggle on or off or swap or whatever, where they took that away in the two. And I was like, I don't like this. You know? <laughs> But um, I have to imagine that you were one of the voices that helped make the expansion wing happen. Maybe. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't know. Because, of course, the, at that point, Brad Schiller's in and all these other, you know, big programmers are in. And, friend of the show, Brad Schiller. I love I love Brad. He's he's a very dear friend of mine. He's actually who I still call this day when I have a hog problem. You know, hey, Brad, you ever seen this problem? What do I do? You know? Yeah. He has, he has saved me so many times. But um, Jed had recommended me for Louise Mandrell. He was like, they're looking for an LD. And this is in 1995. And I'm like, a what? <laughs> you know, what? I don't, I just do lights at Opryland. He's like, well, go down and talk to him. Just go talk to him anyway. I said, well, okay. So I go introduce myself. And I've always been a very honest person. I don't want to sell myself for something I'm not. I'd rather tell somebody that I'm not experienced in something, but I'm willing to learn than say, oh, yeah, I can do that. And then jeopardize somebody's show. So I go down there and talk to them. I said, look. Jed sent me down here to talk to you guys, said you're looking for a lighting director for your tour. And I said, um, you know, I don't have much experience. I just do lights at Opryland. <laughs> and he said, well, you want to give it a shot? And I said, okay. So off I went on my first tour. And we weren't carrying production at the time. And I just kind of, um, you know, used what, what the venue had there and started really learning. And that's when I did start kind of going, I'm tired of using this plot that they have. I'm going to make my own. And I started I was learning how to focus rigs and realizing, you know, what colors I wanted and how I wanted to focus a rig. I love to this day, I love focusing a conventional rig. It's just, it's just fun to, 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 to it's a painting with light, you know, and I had no other choice but to learn consoles quickly. You know, okay, guys, what do you guys have here today? Okay, where is the rig? Oh, so you, were, you weren't even carrying the whole hog. Oh, we weren't carrying anything. So I was kind of forced to just learn, use what I had every day. And if I could specify a console, I always specified a hog. Like if a, a vendor asked me, what do you want? But if it was just a house gig somewhere and they had an Avo in there, or they, I even had the big Avo with the USAC, my battleship, you know, little, I remember that, you know, what was that? The What's that? You know, I always call it the USAC my battleship console. The ones where you, this is before the record button, where you actually use the pegs. Have you ever seen one of those consoles? I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. This is QM something. Uh, you use the little pegs like you use, in, and you sank my battleship, and that's how you made your scenes. There was no record. That's in, That's insane. Yeah, look at able. It was Ableites console. Having to call shows, I'm learning how to call spot cues. I love calling spot cues, and, and then getting in the venues where they still have the carbon arc spotlights, and having to to, to strategize where a guy can be off for a song to change out his carbon. I mean, I, I learned so much that year. Of course, this is 1995, you know? So at the end of that year, they went to Myrtle Beach for six weeks to do a show in a theater that just got torn down last year, but um, or a couple years ago. But they were doing a six-week run with Louise at the Grand Palace in Myrtle Beach. And they're like, Susan, do you want to come over with us and do this? Now, this is my first time actually designing and programming a full two-hour production show in a theater. And I thought, okay, that sounds fun. <laughs> so 
off I went for six weeks to Myrtle Beach. And I realized at that moment, I really am starting to love this. I mean, I, I was loving doing it. But of course, at this point, I'm 26. This is right um, end of 1995, going in 96. And um, I was 25 at the time. I was getting ready to turn 26. I'm still trying to be a singer. So I had auditioned at that same time that year, at the end of the year, for Lee Greenwood, who is the, the guy that sings God Bless USA. He was opening a theater here. And Lee hired me to be one of the singers on the show. So I left Louise to go back to sing for two years. But the whole hog was in that theater, too. So, of course, I couldn't keep my hands off the lighting there either. And I, I worked with the lighting designer there. And there's still something in me about the lighting that I was really starting to enjoy. So I stayed in that theater for two years. Then I left. And I thought, you know, I've had enough of Tennessee. I'm going to go back to Florida. And I got hired by Disney. I went over to, to do the install on the Disney Magic. That was my first ship install. And it was in Venice, right outside of Venice, Italy. I was there for almost, uh, gosh, several months. Um, I actually was the senior lighting tech. So I was installing lights, climbing in catwalks, climbing grids. But then, since I knew the hog, I was programming all the auxiliary venues because they had like, a at the time, I think it was the Jan's Hog, the Hog 1000 or the Jan, when Jan's got involved with them, the Jan 600. So they had those in like the Rock and Barty and the Studio C and some of the nightclub venues. So they had me programming. So all of a sudden I, I found myself programming all these auxiliary venues. So when, when I got back to the States, we did the crossing. I was done with that. I was like, I've had enough of ships for now. That was my first ship. And um, in the meantime, Louise Mandrell, their people had called me back again and said, look, you know, we're really proud of you for what you've been doing, and that's awesome you were pursuing your music, but we're in a theater in Pigeon Forge now, and I guess for whatever reason, the people that had been in the interim while I was gone just quit or just didn't work out or, or whatever happened, you know, but they needed somebody for the theater, which I didn't realize at the time. They asked me to come do some road shows with them. I said, sure, I'll come. I'll never forget. I was in Reno, and our production manager was like, hey, Louise wants to see you in our dressing room, and I was like, Oh crap! What did I do wrong? You know, you always think you're yeah, going to exactly. Box, you know? And she's like, "That's when she's like, you know, Susan, you know, I'm really proud of you. I didn't even know you were a singer until you left it over to Lee." And she's like, "Cause I've always kept the career separate, you know." And she's like, "I'm really proud of you." She's like, "But when I first hired you as women's lib as I am, I was apprehensive of a female LD." She's like, "But you're you're one of the best LDs I've had." And she's like, "We have this theater in Pigeon Forge. Would you be willing to move back?" To work with me in the theater and I was just like oh my god I just moved back to Florida oh my god you know mm -hmm. so 1999 I packed up and came back here with my plans to stay a year and 21 years years later I'm still here so that's one really long year but I stayed with her in that theater until we closed until she sold the theater in 2005 but in that interim at the time, the whole Hog 2 was becoming big. And you had mentioned this in your email the other day about my Hog 2 quick reference guide. And what was happening was I started getting hired to program for like a lot of other designers or some freelance stuff, like some TV stuff. And I had a sub for my show. There was no time code. We didn't do time code back then. So I, I had a couple people trained to run Louise's show so I could start venturing out and doing some freelance stuff. You know, I, I didn't realize that once again, that this was going to be my career. It was just like something fun until I became a big star. So um, I started teaching hog classes, you know, like these companies in Nashville, like, you know, LSD at the time and um, PRG and all these, all these companies were like hiring me to come over and do these classes and teach people how to run this console because it was such a new concept at the time. And that's actually the class where I wrote the guide for. I remember sitting in my basement one day, I'm like, there's got to be an easier way to do this because, you know, at the time, you know, flying pig systems in England owned this. This is before high end took them. So everything just didn't, you know, the terminology was so foreign to people and the manual was like this thick and like any manual is. And I was like, you know what? Screw that. There's got to be an easier way to do this in English. So I sat down in my basement and just wrote this hog two quick reference guide in like a couple afternoons and I took it over there and all of a sudden this is like early 2000s this is before Facebook and you know before all YouTube trend and 
all of a sudden people are like, can we email this to so-and-so? And can we, and all of a sudden it starts getting shared. And so every class I went to, I am now bringing this hog to guide and giving it to everybody. And all of a sudden now they're translating it into multiple languages and, and vendors are asking if they can put it on their website. And I'm like, sure, go, <laughs> you know, and I get, I get phone calls and emails from people all over the world going, Hey Susan, you're not going to believe this. I'm sitting on this cruise ship or sitting in this theater or this church. And what's laying here on the console is your guide. I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. You know? So um, that's kind of how that happened. It wasn't anything I made money on, you know, that the, the of it was was priceless you know it's just by accident this thing went viral for the early 2000s and um and obviously you know it, it helped a lot of people i still have a lot of people this day some of us older season people are like we remember that susan it got us through so many shows and it just it was so easy to to understand how to turn the console on and make a look you know so it was just i, I felt really 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 good that I, I did something that impacted so many people and um for a long time and that, that was kind of neat, you know. So that, that's how the how-to quick reference guide happened. Honestly, I actually never used that. The thing I used nonstop was the Hog 2 to MA Thesaurus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was yeah, – I needed that too when it came out because that was a, a big transition for me going from the Hog to the MA because it was just different terminology, different little uh, approach to things, and it took me a little while to get my head around it. And so, you know, I feel like a lot of us were carrying that document around with us, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, everyone who had learned Hog 2 and was trying to transition to MA was like, oh, just whip out Susan's guide. What does she say to do? That was incredibly helpful. It, it was, you know, and uh, even for me, when I was learning the MA, it helped when I worked for or uh, with other programmers that were Hog programmers and having them explain to me in Hog terminology how to do it on the MA. Because to this day, when I'm on an MA or any console, I still set it up, my views up, like I do on a hog, because that's what's familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, 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 the light bulb finally went off when I would ask you know, other hog programmers that were MA programmers now, okay, here's how you do it on the hog. What's it called on here? And I was like, oh, okay. And I, I, I remember on the MA1, I was so confused with the effects engine with the little pink and orange and uh, all the different color. I'm like, I don't understand this. I don't understand this at all. I, this is uh, so confusing. And I'll never forget. I think it was Nathan Alves, um, who's, a, who's an amazing programmer in Nashville. He, uh, we were working on a show together and he was doing the media server and I was doing the, the console. And I'm like, can you, and he was a hog guy too. I said, can you explain this to me? I don't understand it. He's like, okay. And he sits there and talks to me in hog language. And I went, oh, I finally get it. <laughs> you know? So even to this day, when I learn any new console, you know, I've been on the Geo a lot lately with ETC because the NCL ships have, have transferred the whole fleet to Geo. You know, when I, when I go to another vendor to learn a console, I'm like, like, look, no offense, I'm not trying to compare it to the hog, but that's what I understand. So here's what it is on here. How do you do it on this one? You know, so that's just my my way of learning how my brain works. I just have to... Any console I'm on these days, it just explain it to me in a language I understand. That way, it kind of I can do the I can do the translation in my head a little bit better, if that makes any sense. I get it. As of March 2020, what was your career like on a week, month, or six month basis? Like, how much time did you spend touring? How much time did you spend doing television or corporate projects? How much time did you spend doing other things? Well, I mean, up until March, I was I was busy. Um, you know, I, I toured with Ringo as his lighting director. Ringo Starr as his lighting director. Um, we were supposed to tour this summer. We were supposed to actually spend a whole week up there with you in New York. <laughs> um, I was really looking forward to that tour. It, it got canceled, of course. Um, but you know, typically I tour a few weeks out of the year with Ringo. But the rest of the year, I'm doing um, everything from cruise ships to corporate stuff to television shows, you know, award shows, uh, theme parks. I mean, I had a really busy last year. Last year I was in Japan and China with uh, Ringo. I was in Barcelona with a corporate gig. I did several television shows last year. I did a huge project with Dollywood that I was on for almost a year that got finished and completed last year. Last November was the final of it. And I, I was really busy. Even the beginning of this year, I was busy. I, I had I, I, I fill in a lot. One of the wrestling shows, I was a fill-in programmer for the because they have a pool of people they use, and, and the main guys can't do it. I'd already been on one of the TV shows in January. I'd been on a cruise ship <laughs> for our cast changeover um, in the end of February, beginning of March, right before you know everything happened. 
Um, I'd been out to NAM. I was a guest speaker at NAM on several panels out there. So I had a really busy January and February. Then, of course, beginning of March, I went on to full sale for a Hall of Fame event. So, I mean, I was like already out the shoot this, this year. And then March happened and, you know, everything. Yeah. So my TV show I was supposed to do, that I do every year in May, was canceled in Pennsylvania. And then, of course, Ringo canceled his tour and my ships canceled. And um, everything came to a screeching halt. Even here in Pigeon Forge, we shut down. You know, we were supposed to open uh, Country Tonight at the end of March. Um, that got pushed up to we opened June 5th. So March was kind of a screeching halt to everything. And, um, you know, kind of a reevaluation of, oh, crap. You know, all I know is entertainment. This has been my whole life. I, I've never worked in the normal people world, as I call it. You know, so I thought, what am I going to do? for a career. So it took a lot of soul searching this year, being home to kind of think, what would I enjoy doing if, if this doesn't happen, you know, and just kind of trying to reinvent myself and um, which I'm still trying to reinvent myself. But, <laughs> but um, I, I do feel like there are other options and opportunities to still be able to, to be in entertainment to some capacity. I, I love, um, I love doing things like this and guest speaking and lectures and stuff and webinars. So maybe that's a, an avenue for a while, but, but it will come back, you know, um, it's just a matter of it, how many people actually hang on until it does. Yeah. So you mentioned that at one point you were a chief lighting technician, you've run follow spots, but generally you seem to be a lighting designer, lighting director, or programmer. Yeah. That's, um, that's my main thing. How often are you each one? How often are you just one? How often are you more than one of these roles? It actually is about even some shows I program for a designer, like, like Ringo, like I'm the lighting director for the tour. And I'm also the programmer. I work with Jeff Rabbit. Jeff Rabbit is actually the overall designer for everything. Our production designer designs the sets and the scenic, designs the lighting rig. Um, Jeff and I have an amazing working relationship because I've worked with them so long. He knows that I'm going to maintain the integrity of the show. So he doesn't have to be there for every time I need to program something or change something because he trusts me. And Jeff is amazing. He, I love Jeff. I love working with him. And I love the fact that he has given me this opportunity for the last 18 years and that he does trust me with it. So if we add a song, you know, he doesn't have to worry about, Oh God, I got to fly out. You know, he, he knows that even when I'm touring in Europe and I have to improvise and if we're not carrying stuff and I have to use a house rig, he knows that I'm still going to maintain the integrity of what our look is for that show or our brand is for that show. And um, I, I feel very fortunate to, to have that gig and, and I love him for that opportunity, you know, and I love working with him. I do that. But then there's other shows like on cruise ships and these theaters here where I'm both. I'm the designer and the programmer. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of that is, has moved to that these days, obviously, for budgetary reasons. Because now rather than having to pay two people to come, they has got one. Especially on ships because, it, you know, the cabin space is limited. And, you know, I always get a guest cabin. But, you know, the more cabins they have to give to people, that's less revenue for them. So a lot of times I get hired now, like for the ships and these theaters as a designer and programmer. So I can design the show. I program the show. Um, so it just depends on what gig it is. I still do all three, you know, and I love them equally. I love being a programmer for other designers because to me, it's a challenge trying to get in their head to see what they want. And it's, it's, it's so rewarding when you click with them and you already have it program before they get it out of their mouth you know that's what you're looking for yes you know and I, I enjoy that feeling you know so um and, and it helps me learn too because because like i said working with other designers and programmers i always learn so much too no one ever thought of doing it that way or oh that looks cool i might have to use that you know <laughs> so I, I enjoy it all tell me a little, little about your work with ringo star uh, how long have you been with uh, him and how long have you been working with jeff on that on that show and how did you get connected with them uh, since 2003, and I was working at the Louise Mandrell Theater, and when I was there, I was the lighting director, lighting programmer, lighting designer, lighting fixer. I mean, I was everything. I wore all the hats there. So Pete Bilton, who is still a very dear friend of mine, he was working for Group One at the time, and we had these clay packy stage stands in there, and um, I didn't know how to fix moving lights very well, so they sent him to teach me how to repair these lights. And we just hit it off and became really good friends. And, of course, we had the Hog 2 in the theater. And he'd gone to work also for Morpheus short, shortly after that. 
And um, they were looking for a lighting director for the tour. And they needed somebody that was a hog tube programmer. So, of course, Pete's like, hey, I know this girl that's like the ultimate hog queen, man. You got to talk to her. So um, this is actually a funny story. It's, it's, it's embarrassing, but it's a fun embarrassing. So I get this call from, from Morpheus. And uh, they're like, hey, your name was referred to us and you're a hog too. I said, yeah. And, well, we're looking for a lighting director for the summer Ringo Starr tour. Well, I'm a country music girl. And I'm like, okay, that sounds fun. I really didn't know who Ringo was. So <laughs> I heard, is that a familiar? <laughs> so I go back to the theater that night thinking, how am I going to, I've been, I, at this point, I'd been leaving for maybe a few days at a time to go teach a hog class or go program a TV show somewhere, but I hadn't been gone for two months. So I thought, how am I going to ask Lily if I could leave for two months? So I get to the theater and I'm talking to the band guys. And I'm like, yeah, guys ever heard of somebody named Ringo Starr? And they're like, Susan, are you kidding us? Please tell me you're kidding. I'm like, uh, well, I mean, sounds familiar. You know, <laughs> you know the band The Beatles? I'm like, yeah. Well, he's a drummer. I was like, oh, wow, cool. The drummer <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. So I, I think that's one reason why I've stayed so long because, I mean, I have such an, uh, an utmost respect for the Beatles now. I mean, they, they really revolutionized music history. And, you know, to see him walk on stage and no matter what part of the world we're in and what languages are spoken, to see kids from three to 90 jump up and down and singing Yellow Submarine and singing all these songs and going, wow. I mean, I, I love Ringo. I absolutely love working with him. But back to when I first went touring with him, you know, I was so naive. I just, I was like, wow, that's cool. That sounds fun. So I, of course I go ask Louise, our production manager, and they're like, absolutely go. You know, as long as our show doesn't suffer, you got somebody to cover you here, go for it. So I got out there and, and Pete at the time was my master electrician on the tour. And he really helped me learn the ropes of that level of touring because we were carrying or we do carry production on that tour. So this was my first tour doing something of that capacity where we are carrying production and having to improvise on days and make things fit. And, you know, you do the challenges that you get on a day to day touring basis that I'm sure you're familiar with. And um, I, I loved it. And I thought, well, that was fun. And then the next tour came and they called me again. I said, cool, I got called back again. I went back and 18 years later, when I get that call, I go, yay, I've been called back again. <laughs> that's really cool. So uh, that's how that evolved. And of course, I worked closely with Jeff back then. And, and it just became like a, a family out there. You know, I mean, majority of our crew, we've all been together on this you know and it's it's like i don't know i I really look forward to that tour because it's just it's my my family it's my road family and we all just get along we all play nice in the sandbox together um our daily routines are very i don't want to say structured but we have a a rhythm the sound guys wait for me to get up and focus before they start making noise and if i do run into an issue that day where i'm running behind i'll tell them hey guys go ahead and do your stuff you know I'm, i'm having a problem today or whatever but we all respect each other's positions and we all help each other when, when we need it. And um, it's just, it's just a very pleasant experience. What's the process from when you start through the first show? We typically do um, a production rehearsal. Unless we're, if, if, if we've done two tours in one year, um, the second tour, we just kind of do a rehearsal for a couple of days just to brush everybody up and go. But if it's a new tour, we have production rehearsals for about two weeks. Well, I guess about 10 days. Um, where we'll go in and because we, we usually have a new band configuration because I don't know if you're familiar with the all-star band, but his band is made up of all, all stars, you know, all seventies and eighties rockers, you know, from that there were stars within themselves. So they all have to learn each other's songs because we don't do just Ringo songs and Beatles songs. Every guy does three of their hits. So it kind of, oh, so everybody's learning everybody's songs, learning all the harmonies and the vocals and, um, so we'll go into rehearsal and while the band is in rehearsal, um, we're also programming and Jeff typically does come in for that and we'll sit there and listen to the music. And, um, I usually start programming over the band while they're rehearsing. And then if we need nighttime stuff, we'll stay at night and program. And then, um, you know, the day before we open, we usually open in the same venue. We've rehearsed it, you know, in Canada a lot and because usually in casinos, and um, we'll just stay put there for a couple of weeks, you know, fine tuning everything, getting the band up and going, getting the sound done, getting the lighting all done. And then we open our show there, then off we go. 
I understand that Jeff is the designer, so he's going to have separate conversations with Ringo, but like how much input at this point is Ringo still giving him or is it really just, dude, at this point I trust you? Jeff actually has meetings with Ringo prior to the tours and um, Jeff creates these really cool backdrops and he, he has been with Ringo from day one of their all-star tours and so he, he actually talks to, to to Ringo about what his vision is for the tour and Ringo you know, express what kind of thing he wants because he likes you know peace and love and he likes different things that he likes and Jeff takes that and creates these beautiful backdrops that when you first look at them sometimes you go what am I going to do with that but then you start layering lighting on them wow depending on what you put on they're beautiful and then we just bring them to life and we have some bear lights that are dedicated for the backdrop and Jeff has these everyone has loaded with different custom gobos so we can put them on the drop and, and and take them out of focus and do different kind of things. Sometimes they're out of focus doing some kind of lava lamp looking thing. Other times they're a peace symbol, you know, and um, mm-hmm. they go like stars. So we have lots of star, different star custom gobos. And at that point, Jeff goes, here's what we're doing, Susan. And here's our gobos. We got to load in the lights. And um, but, yeah, no, Jeff, Jeff is directly involved with Ringo. I, and even even on the road when I need to make any changes or cause I'm the one touring with it. So sometimes if, if a certain hanging position isn't working, I always contact Jeff and say, Hey Jeff, this isn't working. Can we change this? And 99% of the time he's like, Oh yeah, no problem. And he'll redraw the plot. He draws all the plots. Um, even when we're doing the European tours or modified plots for something or the TV gigs, TV ones, he usually comes out for when we're doing like a DVD or something, but he deals with all the plots and all that stuff. And um, like I said, if I need to make a change to something, I always go to him. You know, or if our Ringo wants something different or says something to me, I immediately contact Jeff and say, hey, Jeff, um, Ringo is asking if we can do this or, you know, this hanging position just isn't working. It's getting in the way. Do you mind if I move this over here? And, you know, most of the time he's like, yeah, no problem, you know, because he knows I'm not doing it just because I'm doing it. It's because it's a challenge I'm facing every day. And it'd be easier if we did it this way. And he'll redraw the plot for me and send it to me. So um, Got it. he works. I mean, he, he really values my opinion so if i need to remember something or i want to do something you know add something to the plot i just tell him and he's like oh yeah that's a great idea no problem let's do that he'll you know he'll email it to me and here i have my new plot so yeah we have a really good working relationship so using your experience from this tour or from any of the other tours that you've done, tell me about lighting for imag camera on these tours because i i feel like that's become just ubiquitous but it's definitely different from the concert lighting portion of the of the show no, it's interesting you ask about iMag because that's one thing that Jeff has taught me. Uh, and it's one thing I actually talk about now when I do when I do any kind of like guest lecture is, you know, nowadays we are lighting for iMag and we're lighting for cell phones. Think about it. People have their phones up the whole dang show, taking video and pictures and they're posting on YouTube, posting on Facebook. It's got to look good for the phone. It's got to look good for iMag. It's got to look good for the audience. And it's almost like, in Ringo's tour in particular, we're lighting for television. And, and it's like, you know, like in all of our Lecos, unless I just have really crappy Lecos, we don't carry our Lecos, the, the, the venue provides those for us. But um, we always, he always, you know, color corrects them and uses this cosmetic gel. And we always put the CTO in the spotlights. And every day I, I got to balance it out to, in, the, in the spotlights. And What color temperature are you shooting for? Usually around like 4,200, just kind of in the, the warmer range, you know. And um, we used to have still some some cars in our rig, but we finally upgraded <laughs> to some LEDs. And um, we have the VLs and some Sharpies now. And we have some LED wash lights now. And we used to have the old Morpheus fader beams <laughs> when I first started. Oh, wow. But, um, but yeah, balancing it out to try to get a warmer color, because we still use the Lico, so we want that warmer color temperature. But at the same time with the LEDs, you know, I, I use my phone. I, I actually use my phone camera. I mean, obviously, the pictures I post on Facebook, you know, I, I love shooting every show I do. But I actually use it for a reason, too, to to balance it out because I have all the LED stuff on inhibitives, um, depending on my trim height. So that way, you know, um, I'm not blowing everything out. I don't run any of it at full as far as the LED stuff because it just blows everything out. So I don't want Ringo look washed out in spotlight either. So it's one of those things that. I do. I use my camera as a kind of a monitor for me because it looks good on here. It's going to look good on someone else's cell camera in the audience. Got it. So we have iMag that day. I usually get with the video director for iMag and 
and he don't, he'll do a color balance and sometimes they don't, <laughs> but sometimes they do. But, you know, if I have a good video crew in the iMag in house, you know, it's amazing how we all just kind of work together and I'll watch their, their screen too and kind of go, Oh, okay. And since I have everything on inhibitors, I can, I can at least, you know, um, we're on MA2 now on um, Ringo. So I put everything on inhibitors separately. So that way, if I look at a screen, iMac screen, or I look at my camera and things are flaring too much somewhere, I can at least adjust it because obviously we want to see Ringo. We want to see who's singing, you know, not have the contamination on them. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, we are lighting these days, touring, you know, almost for television as well um, yeah. at the same time. So it's not just about um, the live audience. It's also about the iMag. And it's also about the thousand cell phones that are out there doing this. Because I didn't realize, but Ringo and the band, they go home and watch this stuff on YouTube, you know, and that's what they're seeing. So it's like, uh-oh. And, and you never know what kind of crappy camera somebody has, you know. So, it's a challenge balancing it out, but I, I do use that as kind of a, you know, unofficial tool as I use my camera on my phone to see what it looks like. Makes total sense. Uh, but yeah, I'll definitely say uh, my heart drops a little bit when I'm working with video folks I haven't worked with before. And I'm like, oh, when do you want to chip the cameras? And I'm like, oh, we don't need to chip the cameras. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> what, what, what do you mean you don't need to chip the cameras? Oh, no, what's what's going to happen today? I'm like, oh, we got an auto iris. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> That kills me. And How about just don't do video then? If you're going to auto iris, just don't do anything. Yeah, we've all been in those situations, you know, and um, I always appreciate it though when I have a good video crew and I actually will thank them because there's sometimes there's a venue where I'm just like, wow, this looks awesome. And I'll get on a headset and say, hey guys, please tell the video guys this looks amazing. And they, they always appreciate that, you know, but then you've got the, you know, the, the auto, I always put an auto. It's like, oh my God, okay. <laughs> it gets me too when we got these like, massive rigs and we got these beautiful looks. I mean, I learned a lot about television programming as far as, you know, I can't except from Mark Carver. I worked with him a lot in Nashville mm -hmm. and like on the Stellar Awards and some, a lot of the, you know, the gospel music award shows. And he always taught me a light for the camera, all these big angles and these big giant looks, which has kind of become like my, almost my signature looks now, just in these big, you know, in your face looks. And the thing is, a lot of these directors take all these close-ups. I'm like, I got these big yeah. beautiful looks. And, you know, there's a couple of jib guys I work with that are awesome because they're used to my, programming now and this one guy he's awesome with the jib because he'll he'll get the wide shots and fly in between my lights and get, you capture these moments but then the director doesn't take them i'm like and i'm watching my little monitors over here and all the cameras going take that shot take that shot and it's close up i'm like ah why do we have all these lights if you're never going to show them <laughs> can you tell me about a project that you designed from the ground up yeah, I was actually involved for about a year from day one from a project for Dollywood, which is a theme park here, Vision Forge. And they were opening up this new land, this new um, section. And this tree, this huge tree was going to be the iconic centerpiece of this land. And um, it was called the, the Wildwood Grove. And this tree, the Wildwood Grove tree, was going to tell a story of Wildwood Grove. And Dolly narrates it. And basically, it's... Um, kind of like, like the lighting was like combination of architectural meets theatrical meets rock and roll. Um, there wasn't any video used at all. Um, the tree wasn't even built when I got on board with this. Um, we had to design it. We got bandit lighting involved and they, they helped the logistics on it as far as the, the actual, you know, calculating all the power and the weight and you know, what we need. And it, it was, it was a group project for this thing we had four poles on um, surrounding this whole tree because you have to light it from every side so people can watch this and um it was challenging it was very challenging to light something that didn't even exist and um we had this uh, uh, two programmers on it there's another programmer that programmed we have over 700 butterflies she loves butterflies and there's these led butterflies that are a really good size but they have four different quadrants in them with with leds in them and a media server ran through those. He used an AVO. I used a hog for lighting. But it was really challenging because of, since there were no video projections, we were telling the story with lighting. So you talk about custom gobos. And then I had to sit down and really think out the gobo load of what was in what wheel and what gobos I wanted to use together. So obviously I couldn't use a gobo in wheel one and two, two together. So I had to put this in another light or put it somewhere else. And so I had four four moving lights per pole that each had, I, had, I call them an A, B, C, and D load. So the A load had this set of gobos, the B load had this set of gobos. And it that in itself took a while just to figure out 
the order of gobos to put them, where to put them, so I could use them in different aspects to tell the story. We have four different shows we do. We have a summertime. We have the main show, which is a story of Wild Wood Grove. We have a summertime one, which we actually keep that one. Then we have a fall one, an autumn one with all the fall leaves and, you know, that kind of thing. And we have the Christmas one, obviously. It's Christmas ornaments and wreaths and, you know, snow and, you know. So that that was a challenge in itself right there. So that took some time to figure out the gobo load. And then, of course, the the graphic designer was sending us the artwork, and we had to resize a lot of it to to make sure it showed up at the the throw links we were throwing the gobos. I mean, it was – it hurt your brain. If you don't mind my asking, what fixtures were those? Um, they were the Elation. I can't remember the name of them. They just come out. They were the outdoor. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, of course. Artists, I think we had mostly Elations on it, and um, we had wash lights, uh, LED wash lights, movers, LED just static LEDs, and then we had the Elation. I think they're Proteus, maybe. Does that sound right? Proteus. Anyway, it was a beautiful light. I, 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 then we used some Chauvet. Um, I had Chauvet Licos, also the Ovations, which were the color-changing outdoor rated. And those were beautiful, too, because I had a base layer. I wanted a base layer of gobos on the tree at all times, even during the, the in-between show moments. So it's an out-of-focus, you know, basically breakup gobo. But yet I could follow along with the colors throughout the whole show. But it kind of gave the tree and the rocks below the tree more of that kind of shadow dimension to it, you know? Got it, yeah. But those, I think, I think it's called the Proteus. We were like the second people to use them. So we were kind of like out the door, the guinea pig form. But they, they're beautiful lights, especially for an LED fixture. They had the framing in them, the shuttering in them. Because at one point, I had the shuttering open up to make it look like roots growing up the rock because they wanted the, the tree to be coming to life. So I had these roots go, but I had an index. And then I had to shut the shutter closed and open it real slow so it looked like the roots were crawling up the rocks and crawling up the trunk of the tree. And it was an intricate programming, a very specific intricate programming it was not just a, a song i was lighting it was like i was telling the story with the lighting you yeah. know and um have i put everything in obviously in presets even my indexing and of the gobos and presets you know because if a gobo would slide out of, out of position or they change the gobo out you just update preset as you know rather than having to go through the whole show so I mean, it was it was a challenge i mean everything it was very specific and um they sent me a console to the house. Um, I actually sat in my dining room for two weeks solid, and I don't think I even left. Um, they sent me a previous system, which we used Light Converse at the time, which I think is something else now because they got bought out. But George Jackson actually drew all that for me. He drew all the um, imported, all the CAD drawings of the tree. The tree didn't exist at this point. All the CAD drawings of the, of the new land, of this tree, drew the whole lighting plot in there, you know, and then they sent me this computer and walked me through on the phone and how to load the different gobo loads in and load the different scenes in. And then I had a hog sitting on my dining room table and I had the time code track coming into it. So I was time, so I basically pre-programmed um, everything before I even got there and time coded everything before I got there because the clients wanted to see it. And I'm like, it's going to look different. In per- it's going to look similar, but just rem- rem- you know, remember these intensity levels on my screen are going to look different out there, especially when we're dealing with ambient lighting and different times of the year when there's dusk and then there's no dusk and there's dark and there's sunlight. And it's, it's not. It's all going to look a little different, you know. But um, I, I spent two solid weeks. The director ended up coming up with me because one thing I learned was everybody's monitor looks different. So what's yeah. looking great on my monitor, I'd email them this video file down in Florida. I was working for an imagination house in Florida, actually, on this project. And they're like, it looks really dark. And I'm like, well, it looks great here. Here's a picture of what I'm seeing. And they're like, oh, here's what we're seeing. I'm like, ah, you know. So anyway, the director ended up coming up with me. And I was trying to calibrate my computer monitor with the my laptop monitor with the computer monitor. And then trying to figure out what they were seeing down there. I mean, it was it was it was challenging, you know, because nobody's monitors look the same. So, um, just trying to find that happy balance of what was going to look good for them down there, you know. So they're presenting it to the clients, you know. So that was challenging, but at least I got the show dialed in lighting wise um, before I even got on site. So that part was awesome because I mean, you know, all my indexing, like I said, I put in my preset. So when I got on site, my bear was upside down. I just turned it up and you know, updated the preset. But um, the, when the tree first got built and it got completed, since I live here, I was able to go over there all the time and see it as it was, you know, and figure out, oh, we need to move this light and 
wow, I didn't know there was going to be a building in front of that light. That wasn't on the drawing. I mean, literally stuff like that. You know, I guess we got to move that around. Can we shuffle that over? I mean, it was challenging. But we spent the first three weeks there overnight because the park obviously is open in the daytime. And, of course, it's a nighttime show anyway. But we would program overnight. And, um, you know, it was just a lot of trial and error at that point as far as just uh, what the client wanted to see. And But we got those shows open. And then November, we went back and put the winter version in, the Christmas version in. And Okay, so you didn't have to do all the shows at one time. We did. But when it came to winter, we went in to install it just to update stuff on it because we had not actually run it for people. And oh, yeah, and we added some gobos and um, that we had to take a couple out of the one of the shows, the autumn show, and put some additional snowflakes in. So it was one of those things we had to kind of um, go finesse and clean up for winter. But we, I, we initially did install all four shows, but then when the winter show came along, we actually showed up for another week. And went in and fine-tuned that particular show because that one wasn't as critical back in June when we opened up the other stuff. So we just wanted to get the other ones open first, and then we fine-tuned the winter one in November. So I was finally done with it in November, so I'd been on it exactly a year at that point. It sounds like a, an incredible and a unique project. What percentage of the work do you think you were able to do in previs? A lot of it, like 80% of it. I was actually really impressed with how close everything looked when I got on site with it in real life as to what our animated version looked like. And I mean, obviously I was adjusting intensities. I was adjusting shuttering. I was adjusting, you know, indexing of the gobos and stuff. But overall, you know, it was really, really close. And I, I prevised a lot of shows and um, especially I, I prevised um, the Hank Williams Jr. tour when I was on that. I prevised several cruise ship um, shows and, even in previous, like the cruise ship shows are a little bit more, it's about 50%. But at least it saves me time on at least getting a cue structure in. And especially if I'm time coding something, I'm able to sit there and really, really fine tune my time coding to the track. Um, but the previs helps me immensely on any gig that I have it on because it just, inevitably, you never have enough time on the rig. You never have enough time on with the stage to yourself. So to me, being able to at least dial it in before I get there, at least the, the outlining structure of it. And then I can finesse it when I get there and add stuff to it, you know? So every show is a little different. On the Dollywood show, I was making intensity palettes and preset palettes because there were so many layers I had on that tree. But like some of the ship shows, a lot of the intensities like for front wash stuff, I don't even put in until I get there, you know, because it's just really hard to tell until you get dancers on stage and people on stage what it's going to look like. So there, it just depends on the show of how much... Um, I really put into the actual uh, cue list, but at least I can get a structure outlined in it. Got it. Well, and it definitely seems like with a show of that level of complexity with respect to time code, that having that opportunity to just keep running back over it and, and, and retouching the cue and retouching the cue and retouching the cue until it's right at that exact moment where you need it to be. Right, right. But even with concert touring, like I did Hank Jr. And um, I toured for a summer. It was Leonard Skinner and Hank Jr. and 38 Special and Skinner and Hank Jr. were co-headlining, and Steve Owens was the LD for um, Skinner at the time. And so that was his rig, but I got to design Hank's show. So what happened was Steve was programming Skinner. I was in a room, and I was actually on the Maxis console at the time. It was when Martin had the Maxis console. And we had WYSIWYG. I think, I can't remember who drew the rig. I did not draw it. But I had a previs in there, and I sat there and programmed the entire I had to do like 40 songs because they said that Hank really doesn't follow a cue list. So here you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Our, our, our set list rather. So, um, but fortunately being a country person, I knew most of his music. So what I did was I, I programmed all these songs. It took me a couple of weeks. I programmed all these songs. I put them in alphabetical order on my pages at, to fast, medium, and slow. So if I heard a song, I could, I knew it was an upbeat song. I'd go over here and go, okay, it's in here somewhere. Boop, and there it is. And, um, but he did kind of end up following somewhat the set list that summer. But anyway, but I programmed the entire everything in previs, and then the last couple of days, Steve gave me the rig, the actual rig, and I so I plugged my my drive in and loaded the show and saw it live. And then I made my changes and updated my positions and the chorus and things I didn't like. It didn't look as good live. I'm like, well, I'm gonna change this a little bit, but it saved a lot of time because there was no way. I could have programmed all of that without previs because, you know, Steve was obviously doing the Skinner stuff. And um, we did have a media server on that that I learned 
you know, we were triggering Mexedia at the time and, and it was, it was fun. It was a fun learning experience for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, the previs, if I have the opportunity to use previs, especially on ship installs, especially on cruise ship installs. And I, I work a lot for NCL and we actually have a previs studio now down there in Tampa. And, um, it has saved me so much time. You know, when I get on the ship, at least I've got the outline of the show roughed in to get me started rather than starting from scratch. All my presets are built. My, my palettes are built. My cue structure is built. It's time coded. It's time coded already when I walk on the ship. So, um, yeah, I, I, I am a very big fan of previs, not drawing it myself. But I'm a fan of using it. Got it. I, and I wonder, um, what would you say was the reason that you managed to get so much accuracy out of the one for Dollywood? Is it because you were using the actual construction CAD drawings? And so it was known that, no, this is real. This is what it's really going to be. Yeah. And even the CAD drawings are off. You know, when they drew the CAD drawings, there was this big stone rock face that they had rotated on it. And in real life, it was this way. So uh. that did affect a lot of my shuttering and framing. But since I restored, you know, stored those in the presets anyway, I just had to go in there and adjust you know, the framing around it, but you know, it was, it was, it was close. I mean, like I said, there was one pole that ended up being blocked partially by a structure that wasn't on the CAD drawing. It was like, Oh, it was on the CAD drawing, but it was a few feet over, but in real life, it actually got built a few feet this way. <laughs> Can't really shoot light through that roof, you know, but yeah, it was actually close, but yeah, we, but the thing is with that particular thing too, I mean, since it wasn't about lighting people and lighting dancers or singers, it was literally, 100% all lighting it was you know just I, I think it was so close because it was so detailed on just the lighting period there was no intensities I have to worry about as far as lighting people it was all just the layers on the tree the different layers of color and, and gobos and you know got it and, and there was no chance the director saying you know we're going to stage this scene on the other side of the stage this time correct so it, what I would do when I was programming, because I even on light converse, I could rotate the camera around it and rotate it, you know, obviously on, on screen. But in real life, I'd start out here and do the bulk of my programming out here, you know, pro, still programming the back of the tree without seeing it. But then we'd roll my little car around the back of the tree and plug me in over there. And that way I could see it and go, oh, that gobo is upside down, you know, turn around and yeah. oh, this this pole is closer to this tree. So this is too bright here. So now I got to pull that intensity down. So it was a lot of rolling around the tree at night. <laughs> Got it. In a way, it sounds like you were really well-placed to do that job, you know, because of the amount of other experience you had and because you were already so experienced with pre-visualization. You know, it, it sounds like in a lot of ways, it fit you really, really well. I, I enjoyed it. it. It did. And it really helped me grow, too, as a designer because it challenged me because it was different than anything I'd ever done. Um, because, like I said, it was almost like it was partially architectural as well and you know architectural and theatrical as opposed to all the big rock and roll i'm used to doing with bling bling woo big looks this wasn't about that it wasn't about enhancing a performance on stage this was about telling a story and just getting the color combinations right and the let intensity levels right to draw your eye where it's supposed to go and of course the butterflies were featured in this canopy all these you know beautiful butterflies that were doing all these cool effects and colors and that was a big learning curve for me because it was, like I said, different than the normal world I'm used to working in. I'm not going to lie. It was extremely stressful. Um, you know, and of course, the client would come out and, you know, of course, they would see things and go, can we do this instead? Or, okay, you know, and we would, you know, just fine tune stuff. But in the end, it turned out beautiful. When I went back and saw it, like with an audience, I went, oh, my God, I did this. Wow. You know, and to hear people going, well, that's really cool. And it's like, oh, it's very rewarding. You know, but it was hard work. But in the end, it, it turned out great. And, you know, but uh, it's definitely something that's um, a challenge this day to run the show because it's outdoors. So, you know, of course, in the summertime, unless the park is open past 930, which they usually aren't, it's daylight. You know, they'll, they'll start running in at dusk, maybe around 830, 9 o'clock, but you're not getting the full impact of it unless it's dark. Now, this time of year right now, it's getting dark at 530, 6 o'clock. It's perfect. I mean, you can see it beautifully. It's dark. You know, you're still competing with ambient light from the from the rides and from the, the merchandise stands and stuff. But um, but overall, it, you know, it, it turned out really, really pretty. We, we tried to dial in some ambient light when I was programming it in previs, but you still can't accurately represent that because it, it changes on a daily basis 
you know, depending on the sun and depending on what ambient light is on, if it's the normal ambient lighting or is it this time of year is different. I mean, it's just, it's different every day, but I had to keep that in mind too, lighting it for different times of day. I mean, there's nothing you really do about it. It's like, well, it looks better this time of day than this time of day, you know? You, you, the lighting doesn't go to 11. You can have everything at full, you know, and you're just not going to see it sometimes, so. All right. We're going to leave it there for now with our guest, Susan Rose, but she'll be back for more on our next episode. Don't miss it. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light, we tweet at Podcasting Light, and we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show. Come to me.